Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and joining me are... Devendra Hardwar. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, he is a writer, producer, and director who's the co-creator of shows such as Master of None, and an executive producer of Little America, which is available right now on Apple TV+. His newest film, Tiger Tail, is streaming right now on Netflix. Alan Yang, welcome to the Slash Filmcast. Alan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for this wonderful change of plans of to, as to which movie we're, <laughs> we're talking about. So, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, first of all, you can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. And today, uh, you know, on last week's episode of the podcast, I had announced that we were going to be reviewing Memories of Murder a movie that let's just say is difficult to watch in just the United States right now. Um, uh, it's uh, not difficult to watch; it's difficult to find to be able to watch. Correct, <laughs> correct. A, a difficult. I mean, it may that, also be difficult to watch, but a, a, a difficult uh, movie to find. Uh, a movie that uh, our listeners went to great lengths to procure <laughs> in order to uh, prepare for this episode. Um, and uh, you know, at the same time that we were really psyched to talk about Bong Joon Ho's second film, uh, which is a a uh, terrifying uh, examination of the first South Korean serial killer uh, case ever. Uh, at the same time as we were all, we were all ready for that, you know, uh, Alan Yang said, hey, he messaged me. He's like, hey, you know what? Uh, I think that uh, in these challenging and uncertain times we're going through, it might be a better <laughs> idea to review something that isn't wildly depressing, right? Alan, tell us about tell us about your thought that process. That was essentially it. Like, so I obviously am a big Bong Joon Ho fan, and, I, and, I, and that Memories of Murder is a great film. But I just figured, you know, figuring about what we're all kind of going through right now, uh, I thought maybe instead of hearing me talk about, yeah, Memories of Murder is like, uh, you know, it's kind of like Manhunter, but with Tarkovsky references. You know, it's like instead of that for two hours or whatever. <laughs> really silly goofy movie from the early 90s that me and my friends talk about all the time yeah. like literally like just and that everybody has yeah, seen yeah that yeah. everyone's seen and yeah. it's a, a kind of this goofy big tent you know that kind of mid 90s movie that just doesn't exist anymore where they were just crank, they were cranking these out every 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 week it seemed like and and it they it has big stars in it it's insane i, I wouldn't say it's good necessarily but but i have i have some thoughts on it and, and uh, yeah. I, I just wanted to talk about it I thought it'd be fun for everyone all right, well, also, I think Alan realized that we are slowly transitioning into a Dennis Leary <laughs> career oeuvre podcast. Yes, yes, uh, yes. So we, we, you know, we did Judgment Night, and now Demolition Man is next. We're just moving through early '90s Dennis Leary <laughs> joints. <laughs> you know? Link, I know this is going to become a Dennis Leary podcast so fast. You guys won't even, <laughs> you won't even. Yeah, realize we won't it. even. I, we're like the frog being boiled alive. Um, so, Alan, before we get to talking about Demolition Man, you have just released uh, a new film that you wrote, directed, and produced. It's called Tiger Tail. It's available right now on Netflix. Tell us about this movie that you worked on. Yes, uh, very proud of this movie. Um, I've been working on it for a few years. Uh, it is essentially the exact opposite in tone from Demolition Man. <laughs> it is a, it is a sort of um, it, it, it's a quiet and reserved family drama about a Taiwanese immigrant who moves from uh, Taiwan to America in the seventies, and it's about uh, this, his struggles with his family and his inability to communicate with his daughter, um, with a lot of sort of. 
you know, Wong Kar Wai, Edward Yang, and Ho Xiao Shen references with uh, how his life is lived uh, in Taiwan in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So um, it, it, it is not uh, a big budget mid 90s movie <laughs> with cheesy uh, special effects, um, but it is very personal to me. It's inspired by the story of my family, in particular, uh, my dad's story, uh, where he, you know, he grew up in a small town in Taiwan and, and worked in a sugar factory before coming to America and living in the Bronx. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it is, uh, you know, I've been really thrilled by the response, uh, obviously, from the Asian American community, but really everybody, you know, if, 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 you, uh, if you've ever fallen in love or uh, had an argument with your dad or, um, you know, made a choice you regretted and, and sort of thought about for the rest of your life, uh, movie, movie applies to you. So, um, yeah. Hope I've you done check- all three of those <laughs> things. There you go. So I, indeed, hope, yeah, uh, I hope you check it out. Indeed, I was very taken to the film. And yeah, uh, my uh, father came from a very similar situation. So I was very uh, struck by some of the personal elements of the film. And actually, uh, I spend about 30, 40 minutes talking with Alan about the movie on uh, my other podcast, Culturally Relevant. So if you want to listen to an in-depth deep dive on that, uh, check out Culturally Relevant. But, you know, uh, that's not what we're here for today. (laughs) We're here to dive into Demolition Man. I hope you can hear the excitement in my voice. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of a century, ravaged by violence, a society of perfect order will arise. Criminals will be frozen and reprogrammed in cryogenic prisons. The prisoners are ice cubes. Their criminal instincts are being reprogrammed as they sleep. Aggression and deviant behavior will be totally eliminated. He's a criminal the likes of which you have never seen. In a bad time, he was the worst. I'm going to love running this place. But in the year 2032... This morning, Simon Phoenix escaped from this cryo facility. We are, quite frankly, not equipped to deal with the situation. Amidst a world of peace and calm... We're police officers. We're not trained for this kind of violence. How was the fiendish Simon Phoenix apprehended back in the 20th? In the end, it took just one man. John Spartan. You mean the Demolition Man? That was from the trailer for Demolition Man. Uh, the 1993 film directed by Marco Brambilla. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. A police officer is brought out of suspended animation in prison to pursue an old ultraviolet nemesis who is loose in a nonviolent future society. Now, yeah, this movie came out almost three decades ago, which really, uh, we're dating ourselves when we're talking about this movie uh, coming out when we were kids. Yeah, We, we are and, almost to the time when cryogenically frozen John Spartan has awoken. Like, this is where we are right now. It's kind of insane. <laughs> I we're remember when there. this movie first came out, everything about it seemed outlandish. I mean, who could have imagined that one day in the future, people felt like they could be casually racist to Asians, there'd be no more toilet paper, and people would avoid physical contact for fear of spreading disease. It is ridiculous how much this movie got right. Anyway, Alan, re-watching this movie, what parts of it resonated most with you? It, so rewatching it, you know, I always knew, even as a kid, again, there's a caveat that when you're a kid and you watch something, you're like 10 years old, you watch something, Things about this movie stick in your brain in a way that, of course, they wouldn't if you're an adult because you'd watch it and you'd probably be like, 
well, this is kind of nonsense and forget about it for the rest of your life. But in this situation, <laughs> I will make the argument that they, that this movie contains way more memorable scenes, ideas, and images that it has any right to. And and I, I, let me make that argument for one second, because even on the rewatch, it, it's like, you know, some of these ideas are either really funny, really catchy, really interesting. Something about them um, has always sort of resonated and and like me and my friends talk about it and we all get these jokes and I don't think it was that massive a movie I mean it was a pretty big hit but and it's obviously not a classic you know we're not talking about Terminator 2 or Total Recall or, or, or you know those really sort of classic movies from the 90s this was kind of a middle of the road movie but it has these weird ideas so let me just go through a couple of them that 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 struck me on the rewatch um, the idea that Taco Bell is the only restaurant, I think, is a thing that people <laughs> just remember, you know, remember about the movie. That's also tied into the idea that the only popular songs that are played on the radio are commercial jingles. And and these two <laughs> ideas. Can we can we get can we get the the prequel film that's all about the franchise? Wars? <laughs> I, mean, I, like, <laughs> I love that idea. Like what, it just raises so many questions. It's, crazy. it's just it, we're, we're almost there. Franchise by the way? war. I want to watch that movie. I want to know how the how Taco Bell <laughs> defeats everyone in the franchise wars. <laughs> we Give do. Me Give me that backstory. We have the fancy Taco Bells. I don't know if you guys have been to the Taco Bell Cantina. Oh, I've been to a Taco Bell yeah. Cantina. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I went to one We're in there. Cleveland there. when I was there for the NBA Finals one year. Uh, anyway, that's a side <laughs> story. But but yeah, I think in those in those prequels, Taco Bell is the underdog, and it takes down McDonald's and Burger King. You know, part of it's part yeah. of the Yum franchise. It just comes comes out of nowhere and stabs them <laughs> in the back. Um, but yeah, that that idea kind of dovetails with the idea that all the popular songs are commercial jingles. It comes with this crazy cameo. Again, if you're a child of the 90s, uh, MTV Sports' Dan Cortez is in a Taco Bell singing the Jolly Green Giant jingle, and you never see him again. It's never referenced. You just see him. It just comes out of nowhere. It's it's really crazy. I mean, it's, it's really just like, why 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 cast him? Um, the other, a couple other things that are really memorable, uh, the sex scene between Sylvester Stallone and Sandra Bullock where they, where they wear helmets and don't touch each other, that is definitely seared into my brain um, from when I was a kid. It's just a weird, like... I don't know. Yeah. It's just like a memorable scene. VR sex is here, by the way. VR porn. Yeah, it's, it's all a that thing. Exists. Yeah. That exists. That exists. Like, yep. That's like, that was eerily prescient. And then pretty much everything about Simon Phoenix, the character played by Wesley Snipes. I mean, his blonde hairdo, his death scene. The uh, Hey, no uh, that, yeah. spoiler alert. He, he dies in the movie. <laughs> but the image of him <laughs> just getting frozen by that weird stick weapon thing and then his head being kicked off. Like, I'll just never forget that image and I, I i don't know why whatever whatever special effects guy decided to add some red yes, in the it's interior horrifying. it's horrifying yeah. it's, i remember that red i watched it again today it was like oh my god it's like it's really i don't know it's troubling when you watch it um and then just one final thing of course uh, i had to mention the three seashells uh just an immortal I guess you want to call it a joke, but it's a, it's just a, a, a kind of idea that everyone, not everyone, but people our age kind of are conversant with. Again, in a movie that, you know, had no right to sort of infiltrate the cultural consciousness in the way that I did. Like, kind of made me think, you know, what movie of this level has that many memorable ideas in it? Um, I mean, that's <laughs> By a By the lot. way, also... That's also sort of prescient because we are we are heading towards the uh, the bidet, you know, yeah. toilet seat rage. Yeah. I have one. I've had one for oh. a couple of years. Every time people come over, I have to explain how to use the damn bidet <laughs> because they they're like, 
What do you do with these three <laughs> shoes? What do you do with these buttons? It's the same thing. I had to write instructions and put them next to the little remote control just so people won't get confused. Yeah, it's amazing. I wonder if the writer of this movie had gone to Japan or something, used a Toto, yeah. you know? <laughs> and this this is a literally a $70 million, which at that time was real money, $70 million summer blockbuster tentpole movie that ends with a poop oh, yeah. joke. Oh, it literally, yeah. the last line is a poop <laughs> joke. They, they know what they had on their hands. They knew what they had with that joke. Yeah. They knew that would be the most memorable thing in the whole movie. Um, okay, so just a couple other thoughts, uh, and, and I'll let you guys go, because I because I you know could talk about the movie forever. Uh, a tiny rant on Wesley Snipes in the movie. Just, I don't know that I've ever seen a broader performance ever in any movie. <laughs> And, and that's not even a criticism. Like it's it's an observation. Might be even a compliment. Like he's 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 essentially playing a cartoon villain or or just a cartoon. Period. It's like it's it, it's <laughs> it's crazier than Jim Carrey's performance of the mask in some ways. At one point, he's in this <laughs> this museum and he walks by some Asian kids and he says "Ching Chong, Ching Chong." Then he takes a <laughs> random guy, just a passerby, and who did nothing to him and slams his head into a wall. Then he picks up a third guy and <laughs> throws fun. him through the wall this is just like in like in the middle of the movie like this is just this is not a scene to like illustrate his character or anything this is just who he who he is and and later on he he gets electrocuted and uh he he shakes it off it's almost a jar jar binks like uh he goes with his lips like he he does that like that's the take they use they put that in the movie um i I just it's 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 his performance as simon phoenix is, is an iconic performance uh also just a side note i just watched white men can't jump and uh, I saw that it came out the year before. And in my head, like my head canon is that uh, Wesley's character from that movie, Sidney Dean, fell on hard times in the basketball hustling game, <laughs> dyed his hair blonde, and evolved into Simon <laughs> Phoenix. So it's, yeah. it's fun to watch the movie with that, with that in mind. <laughs> Amazing. 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 Uh, I will say that when this movie first came out, I was basically a kid. And Simon Phoenix at the time was actually pretty terrifying to me. Uh, like th- this idea that this guy was basically a sociopath and would be could just murder people with impunity. Now I see his performance as what you're describing. You know that it's quite <laughs> silly and over the top. But he was one of the first depictions of kind of a psychopath that I had ever seen in my life. Yeah, that scared. I me, agree. You know, at the time. I think I was scared by him too. And I. I don't think this is crazy. I think he's a predecessor of the Heath Ledger Joker because he has no he has no morals. Mm. He just is a chaos, he's a chaos agent, you know. And it's like yeah. he just it, that's his character. They they're very specific about how he doesn't really have any desires. I guess he wants power vaguely, but he really just wants to kill everyone, which I think is scary as a kid. Um, yeah. It does. It does seem like he's playing the Joker. I mean, even down to the wardrobe choices, it's like, <laughs> oh, this is kind of the Joker right here. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. his, his outfits are basically it's very Beetlejuice too. The like straight yeah. black and white pants. Like there's there's a lot. Of, and then what's it, the guy from Beetlejuice is in this movie too? The uh, the the what was it the psychic from Beetlejuice? Yes, yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, and I had just one kind of further rant about the movie that is just related to why it felt weird to watch it today. And I, I don't know if you guys noticed this. I think David uh, uh, you know, uh, alluded to some of these uh, ideas. But uh, it was borderline scary how much of the movie was directly 
applicable to the coronavirus epidemic, which is like very, yep. Uh, yep. you know, it's it's very early in the movie. Rob Schneider, yes, Rob Schneider's in the movie. <laughs> Rob Schneider and Benjamin Bratt. One of his best roles. I, I, I I, I'm always pleasantly surprised when he pops up. I'm like, I can't believe he's in this movie. They greet each other and they do an air high five where they do like circles <laughs> in the air. And then later they say they don't touch. And later they say in the movie, we are not used to physical contact greetings. Again, coronavirus, very relevant. There are several scenes that take place in the movie, like in conference rooms, and everyone's appearing on these like weird metal pillars with video screens on them, which are essentially Zoom meetings, which is we're all doing them all the time now, right? And, you know, after the sex scene, Sandra Bullock says a very kind of scary thing, which is like, she's like, the exchange of bodily fluids is banned. You know, do you know what that leads to? It leads to NRS and UBT and all, like lists all these diseases. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> like, is, is Demolition Man, like, just <laughs> like, do, do they know what's happening? Um, and, and of course, uh, there's no toilet paper, as as as, as Dave talked about. But yeah, it, it's, um, it, it was weird watching it today. Did you guys, did you guys notice that? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of parallels. A lot of parallels. <laughs> I, I had to look up NRS and UBT. Like, are those real things we should be afraid of? But uh, I don't think they are. I think they just made up for the film. Um, but uh, let's uh, let's go to Devinder. Devinder, what were your thoughts watching this movie again? It is a uh, it's an experience. You know, I remember seeing this movie as a kid, and it was never it was not in my rotation of movies I watched a crap ton of, like uh, Mortal Kombat or something. Like, it was never a legendary. But my wife loves this movie like she's a huge fan we have a blu-ray so i was all ready for us to do this review and it's a you know it's a fun thing to review or to watch right now because not only is it applicable it is so like it's such a 90s action movie where certain things are so lazy where like the action itself is lazy where they don't really care about like giant set pieces or anything and it's all just kind of noisy and messy and then wesley snipes comes in as like this saving grace of like energy his uh his choreography is so good every move he does is amazing uh, i believe there's a story going around since then that he was moving too fast for the camera at the time like for the shutter <laughs> speed or whatever so, so he had to slow down to for the camera to actually catch him which is a thing that does happen in martial arts movies i guess but just kind of funny. Um, I it breaks my heart to see his. Uh, he has a great opening fight scene with like five or six different cops, and every single punch and kick is a different cut. And it just <laughs> man, Might give as well me be a give me like double. that uncut take. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, I, I think he's the saving grace. The random racist bit, which just feels like an ad lib, and I don't know if like. <laughs> I don't feel like that's in the script. That feels like part of the chaotic energy that Wesley Snipes puts in there. But I just start thinking about that because I was like, even if he's a bad guy, you know, the things he does, we shouldn't be doing. But it did feel just very strange, just very, like, flippant in terms of how, like, nefarious it is, too. And I had to think, like, man, the director must have been okay with this. The producer must have been okay with this. The studio was fine with it. All the test audiences who saw this were fine with it. And it's like, this goes all the way to the top. Like, this this one scene is like, we're totally okay with Asian racism, you know, in the 90s. And hey, I experienced a ton of that too as a kid. So it reminded me of that. So there's that bit. Yeah. Uh, but I think all the, the future stuff, like just how prescient it is, is really interesting. This does feel like a Daniel Waters movie at times, you know, and he is one of my favorite screenwriters of that era. Like, how can you not love him? Heathers, Batman Returns, uh, Hudson Hawk, 
all movies I really, really loved as a kid, like Batman Returns is a big one for me. So there are so many interesting ideas in this movie. I do appreciate that, even if uh, it is basically a lazy action movie saved by one great performance. Well, a couple of things I want to talk about, respond to that you just said, Devendra. I mean, I agree with you that the action is edited to within an inch of its life. And I think that... Uh, something I read, you know, Matrix had its 20th anniversary recently, and and I read a retrospective. I think it was Chad Stahelski that was talking about how uh, after the Matrix, mm-hmm. people took martial arts in action films seriously. Yes, right? like, that before the Matrix, it was like it's just like there's a lot of hand to hand fighting, but it was just it was mostly just you know. Uh, pretty unremarkable choreography. Whereas after the Matrix, American films started integrating martial arts a lot more, and we see that to to this day with the John Wick series. Uh, and I definitely recognize that. Yeah, the the action is overall pretty unremarkable. But I will say, in my opinion, the stunts look awesome. Sure, and sure. Yeah. Uh, particularly the opening action scene, which that bungee jump, the, the bungee. <laughs> jump, I mean that. That could be a parody of a 80s, 90s action film. That entire first five to ten minutes, right? I love the opening. It's the ending of another movie. Yeah. You know, it's the final action scene of another movie this movie opens with. And I respect it. Yeah, and there's also a very interesting thing. I I, I wasn't sure what year they set everything in. And they open on what looks like a kind of crazy post- apocalyptic hellscape version of LA and it says LA 1996 because <laughs> it was like three years yeah. in the future it's like oh my god th- they think in 96 it's going to be that and they also have perfect cryogenic technology which is funny um, <laughs> yeah, oh, also yeah, so, in regards to the to, yeah, the, to the martial arts I read that uh, the Simon Phoenix part was originally going to be played by Jackie Chan which is crazy I, that, mm. very, oh, very wow. insane Instead, there's they a had shout to out for, to him at the yeah, end they, they had to settle yeah. for a shout out to him um, but, uh, yeah, so then the, the whole thing where he bungee jumps, it reminds me of like the beginning of Goldeneye, you know, when 007 jumps down the thing, uh, the dam with the bungee cord and everything. And then at the end of my the My favorite thing scene, about that, by the way, really quick, Dave, since yeah. you brought it up. My favorite thing about that is that the bungee cord does not recoil. <laughs> he just, he, it's clearly a, it's clearly a bungee cord, but he just like gets to the bottom of it and that's where he stays. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, that's how they generally work yeah. in these movies. Flash and action then, hero physics. Yeah. And then uh, uh, at the end, they blow up the entire building that Simon Phoenix used to occupy. And I got to say, that explosion looks awesome. And it reminded me of a time when we did a lot of these things practically. Like, if they made this movie today, which they wouldn't, but if they did, they would do that explosion of what seems to be like a building the size of a city block in CG is my guess. Yeah, right? and it, it um, reminds me also of like I just watched some tweet video of like the models in Con Air. Like they had a like a you know a, like a small model sized Las Vegas, and they landed a plane on it. And I don't think they they would never do that now. It would be all in VFX. They'd yeah, pre- it'd be all CG. It'd be easier months to do before that. The, the, the shoot even happened. You know. Did you use a lot of CG in Tiger Tail, Alan? Yeah. Or what, was that mostly practical? What people don't know is that we use the uh, Irishman technology on every actor in the movie. So, <laughs> so it's, it was a $390 million movie. Wow. We, we have, <laughs> Bold yeah, choice. Yeah, we have Ty Ma playing a, a five-year-old boy in it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bold choice. Um, anyway, yeah, so uh, I will say, even though the action uh, doesn't look particularly great when it comes to the shootouts and the hand-to-hand fights... Uh, I think the stunt work is awesome, and I think they blew up stuff real good in the 90s. And uh, <laughs> I did get a sense of what a, uh, a big-budget 90s action film could be. By the way, we should say this movie, 
uh, didn't do particularly well when it first came out. Um, it only made around $50 million or so at the domestic box office. Uh, but I read an interview recently with the screenwriter, which I might talk about more later, where he says that sometimes he gets drunk and he'll Google his own movies uh, <laughs> with, the word un- with the word underrated before the movie title. Right? He'll Google underrated Demolition Man or un- underrated whatever else he's made. And he says that's the one that always has the most results, you know, is that uh, this was a yeah, movie. Yeah, the worst who's, one, yeah. Whose Fancy brilliance that. was not recognized whatever, in its own Whatever he makes you sleep at night, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the image of him doing that, like twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> he says when he gets drunk, to his, to his defense. To his yeah, defense. twice anyway, a day. <laughs> so I <laughs> got to defend, uh, defend the action in the movie a little bit, but Jeff Kanata, what did you think about Demolition Man? Well, Dave... I guess you could say my thoughts about Demolition Man are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Amazing. If this movie is just outdated poo, (laughs) I'll need to know what those seashells do. (laughs) Yes, it poorly aged, but also presaged Red America's Fear of Blue. Wow. Topical, Jeffrey. Topical. I could not help but notice... (laughs) <laughs> that this movie is a friggin' allegory for America today. Mm-hmm. It's it is literally this conglomeration of California that is San Diego has morphed with San Francisco and L.A. to become like the most California thing, where everyone doesn't eat meat and doesn't say bad words and doesn't smoke or eat red meat or yeah. or uh, no spicy uh, food, no spicy food. No yeah. spicy. It, it is all. Everything is bad. That is is bad. Uh, is banned. And everything that makes you a real man, a real American red blooded man, is completely been removed from the future. <laughs> it is the vision of the future yeah. that I think a large part of this country is literally ter- terrified of. The vegans have won. E- yes. yes. The 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 pussyification <laughs> of America. Yes. This, uh, this is what the movie is, is. It says, it says Sylvester Stallone is a real man who likes fucking hot rod cars <laughs> and guns and like all the shit that real men are supposed to like. He, he's the good guy. I know. He's, 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 he's the demolition man. <laughs> he's, he's the good guy and they call him demolition yes. man. Okay. Right. He's the good guy. But I think you're right, Jeff. He's almost the political version of, of, <laughs> of Tim Allen in Last Man Standing. I think he, he kind of espouses yes. similar views, but it was 30 yes, years ago. He's, he's pure concentrated red America injected into a future where blue America won. Like, and I think that to me, I can't not see it, this movie that way. Like when I oh, yeah. watched it, by the way, you guys are making me feel very old because I worked at a movie theater with this movie. <laughs> I was a junior in high school. Um, and uh, when I saw this movie, that idea, and I went back and I, I tried to Google some uh, reviews of this movie. I read the, uh, the Rolling Stone review and the Variety review. And while both of them were pretty, uh, you know, down on the movie saying it's, it's schlock. None of them pointed out any kind of political overtones where it seems so ir- irrefutable, uh, uh, unignorable that this movie is like about this horrible feeling of, of losing that macho American spine, you know? And they want to take away your guns. They want to take away your manhood. <laughs> The, freaking 
they inject the knowledge of how to knit into <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it weirdly conflates fascism with like effete liberalism. Like it, that they yes. literally, that's yeah. what they're doing. And they, they, you know, Sandra Bullock has a speech where like, she's like alcohol, caffeine, contact sports, meat and gasoline are banned. And it's like, that's insane. That's not insane. Number one. And then number two, like they give that same speech to Dennis Leary later. He says the same thing. Like Dennis Leary goes off on a crazy Dennis Miller, like rant about how, well, you know, they, they take, it's like, they're taking away essentially your manhood. I mean, that's what he says too. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the the Dennis Leary-ness of the 90s when we talked about uh, Judgment Night, but you are so right, Alan. It is, they literally just plugged Dennis Leary's stand-up act into this movie because he, I mean, people don't remember Dennis Leary in the 90s because he's had such a prolific film career and television career, but he was a chain-smoking stand-up comic who ranted about he had a, a stand-up special that was very famous called No Cure for Cancer, where he ranted about, yeah, I'm smoking. It's going to kill me. Fuck you. That was his whole bit. It was like these rants about like, yeah, I'm eating red meat. I'm smoking cigarettes. I, oh, I, I don't care. Get it. Put it in me. Put it in me. And the, the, it's like verbatim that moment. He doesn't even <laughs> exist in this movie other than to do that. <laughs> and I'm so – I was so <laughs> reminded of this like Joel Silver – equation for making a tentpole movie in the early nineties, you know, like pre matrix, the Joel silver playbook was like plug in the bits so that the sum <laughs> is equal to the sum. There's no greater than the sum of its parts. It's literally, here's the parts. Hopefully there's a big sum. They don't mesh together. Like you have Rob Schneider in this movie playing his character from Saturday night yes. live, you know, Play, yeah, he literally has that little headset that he wears when he plays that character in, in Saturday Night Live. He's doing the same shtick. They have this movie has a song by Sting called Demolition Man that only exists in the credits because because in the '90s you needed a big you know big music star to record the theme song for your movie. It, like it, none of the parts make any fucking sense together. You know. <laughs> and like what's what's Benjamin Bratt I know, doing in this he's, movie? It's really crazy what he's doing in the movie. I don't know. <laughs> it's it, it this movie is bonkers, but you're so right, Alan, that none of that is what I remember. What I remember is that the crazy cryogenic death that Wesley Snipes has. <laughs> I remember the crazy explosions and and Sylvester Stallone going nuts. And I remember like feeling like the future was so wild and interesting and the three seashells and you know, all of all of that stuff that is is indelible. It stays in your mind because you're like, oh yeah. And it, it's because this was made at a time when movies that talked about what was happening in the future still had kind of a rosy outlook on on the humanity. You know, it's it's it seems crazy to think that we literally don't have movies now that have a positive idea of what the future could be. But right now, it's it's all apocalypse it's all the worst shit it's all you know the the planet is dying every single movie that talks about the the future that's the future that we and so it's such a doer down sad thing that when i was a kid all the movies about the future were like back to the future part two and and uh, you know demolition man all these movies and, and total recall all these movies were the future yeah it had scary shit in it but it was mostly a, a utopia, you know, in the future. All we had to do is get to the future and and technology was going to save us all. And I kind of miss that aspect of it too, yeah. is, 
is this feeling of of maybe some <laughs> some hope. Well, let me throw this <laughs> well, at you, though, know, Jeff. Like, just just know. real quick, uh, we are living in that future. Um, ain't so rosy, buddy. And so. <laughs> That's well, a right. Right. Yeah. Je- yeah. Jeffrey, I, I would submit why. to you that I would submit to you that it's actually not that positive the future depicted. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that uh Dennis Leary has a great point when he's talking about how uh everything that you're doing is predetermined and actually uh to this day literally, I mean, season 3 of Westworld is dealing with this exact topic mm-hmm. where uh you know, an external force or an algorithm or a person or whatever, some kind of system is dictating what your future is going to be. And it might look rosy and nice on the outside, but it, it hides something more yeah. sinister. Yeah. Um, and so well, I, I would I say it's yeah, not, on the outside, I, it looks nice, but like it's it's rotten to the core, Jeff. Well, I, I, I would, would not suggest that it is not dystopian. <laughs> I would suggest that it there's a a feeling that humanity is doing okay as a species is mm. what I mean to say. Not, which I don't think we even get anymore because as a kid, you get the 1984 of it all, <laughs> right? You understand the 1984 of it and that that's part and parcel with a big action movie where someone from the past has to save the future. Mm-hmm. But you also feel like – subtract that element – and shit is rad, you know? It, it got it got self-driving cars right, which is pretty cool. It got um, you know, like like Alan was saying, it's got screens and it got video conferencing and it got a lot of those things right. And it as a kid I felt like, yeah, yeah, I can't wait for that. That's gonna be amazing. Yeah. And I just I just don't feel like our fiction does that anymore. It it mm. it doesn't it's, even it's have, not as aspirational uh, anymore. Yeah, and I, yeah. it can still be dystopian, it can still have problems that need to be overcome by the heroes of the, of the fiction, but all of our problems seem to be literally surviving the dystopic wasteland, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, well, uh, we get the, the lack of resources. of our times. Like, you know, we get the pop culture that reflects what the time we live in. And I think you, you look at what the past 20 years have been, Jeff, uh, it's all been pretty apocalyptic for a while. Yeah. So it's, it's I mean, I, I understand why. I get yeah. it. But I would love I would love some of our fiction to, to fight against the grain a bit and actually yeah, yeah. present, you know. I, I hear you. Hey, I want to tell you about our sponsor, which is Quip, my toothbrush. In fact, my entire family's toothbrush. We have three Quips in our house and we all love them. I particularly love my Quip because it means I don't have to think about Oral hygiene. I don't have to think about care. I just put the quip in my mouth and it does the rest. I don't have to worry about going for the two minutes that are recommended by dentists to brush my teeth. I can't tell you. I don't think for my whole life I brushed my teeth for two minutes until I got my quip because your mind wanders. You don't, I don't want to set a timer. I don't know. I just kind of go and then I get bored and then I stop. But quip goes, vibrates with its sonic vibrations, with the the bristles that are designed specifically for sensitive gums, it vibrates for two minutes and then it turns itself off. And every 30 seconds, it pulses to let me know 30 seconds have passed so I can move to another section of my mouth or just know that I'm well on my way to being done. Also, dentists recommend, and it's a good idea to replace your bristle head. The brush is the actual bristles of your toothbrush every three months. And who among us does that? I bet you're like me and you just let your toothbrush go into oblivion and it becomes basically useless for most most of the brushing that you do with it at a certain point. But because I'm subscribed to Quip, I get a cool little bag in the mail that's got more toothpaste. It's got a new brush head that I just pop onto my existing Quip base. 
Uh, the base, by the way, which is got an awesome little mirror attachment that lets me keep it up and away off the countertop so I don't have to worry about placement. Every, they thought of everything with Quip. It's so great. I really, really genuinely love my Quip, and it helps my life. And if you want to get Quip, go to getquip.com slash filmcast right now, and you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill Free at getquip.com slash filmcast. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash filmcast. F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Quip. The good habits company. Let me let me take your political allegory like one step further, Jeff. Like to me, it's not just even the liberals winning and taking over. It is a very white liberal version of the world, right? No spicy food. As soon as they said that, I'm like, huh, where, where, where's everybody else, buddy? Um, I guess uh, you're calling Taco Bell your best restaurants. And I guess, yeah, if you don't actually like real, like real food from, you know, brown people, I guess that is the best restaurant you can come up with. So it is like, to me, even as a kid, I was like, I, I don't want to live here. This world seems boring. Like I was totally on board with Sandra Bullock's character. I was like, this, I did. This world seems boring and dull, and nobody can do what they want to do. Like it is, it's so restricting in in many ways. And yeah, you don't really see. You see like one or two people of color in the police department, but not really out in the world. Not until like you get underground. It's like, oh, that's where the brown people are. Yeah, that's, it is, you know, and it's retrograde in so many ways. Like it's yeah. not just that. Yeah. It's like so. I actually think a couple things about uh, her character, uh, very subtly named Lenina Huxley, like the uh, author of Brave New World, <laughs> Aldous Huxley. Uh, but yeah. I do actually like the they they did some work in sort of setting her character up. They're like this character loves the 20th century. Like I thought that was just like mm-hmm. a smart thing, right? She has a Red Hot Chili Peppers album up in her office, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. um, she has she loves the 20th century. Just has terrible taste about exactly. what it, what yeah, it is. Like, lethal, weapon three. Lethal, lethal weapon yes. yeah. three. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and so oh, and, and they set her up right. And and I think now I think we're conditioned a little bit to have seen movies with you know three-dimensional characters who aren't the leads necessarily not in all movies but but some and and what's insane is what happens at the climax of this movie is they've kind of set her up to be like you know she's getting better as a cop and like learning how to you know fight for herself and stuff and at the basically the end of the movie he knocks her out like sylvester Stallone knocks her out so she can't be involved in the fight. And then he beats up Simon Phoenix. At the end, she's like, you know what? You were right to knock me out. It was not safe in there. And then he just grabs her and kisses her without really her consent. It's like, that's the end of the movie. You're like, oh my God, like this is not that long ago. You know, it's like, it is, come on, it's 20 something years ago, but it's like, wow, that, I don't think that would fly in a movie these days. You can't knock out the female lead and just be like, oh, this is for your own safety, honey. It's just a different time. I will say though, there is no greater example of Sandra Bullock's supreme charm mm-hmm. than this movie. Like she takes what is absolutely nonsense dialogue. <laughs> and I mean, all of her lines are like mouth salad. You know, they're just, it's just nonsense yeah. words strung together because the screenwriters wanted to show that people in the future talk different and somehow makes it both understandable and listenable and also delightful. Like she is a delightful force in this movie she she's completely given short shrift but like you you understand why sandra bullock is a star is because she makes what is absolutely garbage on the page into something that's kind of lovely 
Agreed. Uh, I think you're yeah. right. She is great in this movie, and her. <laughs> I was watching this movie. Uh, my wife had never seen it, and I was watching this movie today. And she looked up from from what she was doing, and she said, "Is Sandra Bullock a robot in this movie?" <laughs> she literally didn't know. She didn't know if Sandra because she's talking so strangely in this movie. Yeah, and, but she pulls it off. It's yeah. It's, she pulls it's it really off. Really hard to do that. You they kind of yeah. do the Cloud Atlas like future patois, like the true yeah. true. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know why my favorite moment of her dialogue in this movie is when they're at the Taco Bell and uh, he says, hey, can, is there any salt around? And he's like, um, salt is bad for you and therefore it is illegal. And I just, I don't know why. That's just like, Even though she had already made that point a bunch of times, it's like the fact that she was saying it again in that way, that, that just got to me. Just a completely random note. Uh, um, by, by the way, this movie name checks President Schwarzenegger. Yes. We may end up seeing that. I don't know. Uh, it's it's not un, got, uh, it's not out of the question at this point. It, He's got. I, I mean, when this movie was made, a Governor Schwarzenegger seemed like an insane yes. thing. So yeah. and this was this yep. movie was played yeah, yeah. as a joke. It's truly a joke. Yeah. It was, you know, it was played yeah. as a thing that is so ridiculous. I mean, I, first of all. I think we would actually be grateful for a President Schwarzenegger sure. at this point. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, when it, when it was out, it was conceived of as a ridiculous notion. Uh, and of course, now we have a reality television star uh, in the chair of the presidency. So uh, uh, they also actually had an explanation in the movie for how he could become uh, president <laughs> uh-huh. because Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't born uh, in the United States. So they had uh, a, a amendment. 61st Amendment. New Amendment, fictionally, yeah. To explain what it was. A um, couple of other notes, by the way. Uh, you guys talked about Taco Bell earlier. Uh, are you aware that there was a, 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 in the European release, that it was not uh, Taco Bell. It was actually Pizza Hut that won the franchise wars. I think the uh, franchise wars were literally who's going to pay us enough product placement money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or alternately, who is okay with us using their uh, logo in this way? In no, this there's way. there's no way that it wasn't product placement. There's no way. I even think that the the commercials on the radio probably had something – some. I mean, it's a Joel Silver joint, I remember man. that, yeah. Well, according yeah. to this interview, uh, they the, the original draft of this was Burger King, and then Burger King and McDonald's both turned it down. They both didn't want to mm. do it. Interesting. So, uh, but, you know, Taco Bell had the last laugh. And talk, Taco Bell's the perfect agree. level for this movie, right? And McDonald's is like, it's not, <laughs> yes. cur- it wouldn't feel correct. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Taco Bell, yeah, it makes sense. Well, the funny so thing, here's, here, here's the my thing issue with me... Taco Bell, though, uh, is... You know, the guy, Cocteau is his name, right? He says, hey, I'm going to take you to Taco Bell. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, Taco Bell. And, you know, Sylvester Stallone's like, why is why is Taco Bell such a big deal? Ooh. And uh, then Sandra Bullock's character explains it, that Taco Bell won the franchise. Wars. So, But then my question is, would that have been their reaction if – because she, she says all restaurants are Taco Bell now. So why are they like, ooh, he's taking you to Taco Bell? Is just going to a restaurant at yeah. all like I a think big deal? He's taking you out to a restaurant. Also, the, <laughs> the reason that I that I the reason that I believe it to be uh, product placement is because he goes, oh, oh Taco Bell, and then he goes, although I could go for a burrito, <laughs> which is the line that you put in to make sure the people that paid you a lot of money don't think you're dissing their product in the movie. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah, guess yeah. the franchise wars make sense, by the way, because this is a post-quarantine society. So the <laughs> only restaurants that reopen are like the major franchises, right? And like to go to a restaurant will be a special thing. Who know, Like all my lovely yeah. mom and pop shops here in New York are dying out <laughs> left and right. And it's terribly sad. So... Uh, I don't know. We're, we're getting there. I mean, this, this the, is essentially the, Bible for the future. This Everything yes, in this movie yes. will come true. It's, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> uh, 
the other two thing, the other thing I want to mention that I totally didn't remember and kind of blew my mind in rewatching it <laughs> is this movie has fucking Nigel Hawthorne in it and Andre Gregory. <laughs> yeah. Andre Gregory, who's in my favorite movie of all time, My Dinner with Andre. He's the titular Andre in My Dinner with Andre. <laughs> Is reduced in this movie to being the like flash forward version of a character that is bafflingly introduced in only to show you that there's a flash forward version of him and then unceremoniously <laughs> murdered uh, by the by Wesley Snipes. But I was like, that's fucking Andre Gregory, like just cash and checks, man. It was crazy. It's it's that tied yeah. into that. It's also kind of inexplicable. I I actually was curious because I didn't remember who directed it. I was like, oh, this is probably just like a you know mid nineties action movie journeyman or something. And I looked it up. This guy named Marco Brambilla only ever directed two movies in his life. He's a visual artist. He's an Italian visual like video installation guy. His only two movies, Demolition Man and the Alicia Silverstone. Benicio del Toro vehicle, excess baggage. Then he was out. Yeah. He's wow. done, done with Hollywood. Wow. He did those two movies. He, he has contributed what he needs to to society. It's crazy. I mean, like, I, and he's done. I've never heard of this guy and was like, oh, wow, he directed Demolition Man. But I looked it up. He was like, you know, I think he's probably a young, hotshot, like video installation artist. And suddenly he's mm-hmm. direct. It's his first movie. He's directing the Stallone, Sandra Bullock, Wesley Snipes movie. I can't even, I just don't even know his, like how he was giving notes on set for like, I, I yeah. like, can you imagine yeah. wow. that? I, he's like an Italian guy. That's where that sex scene comes from, by the way, because it is pure, like, I walk into a museum and it's some, like, weird, <laughs> random art installations. Like, yeah, that that is the weirdest sex scene of the 90s, for sure. Also, isn't it funny how that – it seems like somebody gave a note that said, hey, man, if you're going to rev the entire audience up for a sex scene – you got to give us something, which is why the very next scene is Sylvester Stallone walking in, accidentally turning on a screen, and a naked chick is on it. <laughs> <laughs> that feels you know, very like naughty. So, yes. ra- so random. So it's, random. It's, it's, by the oh, way, yeah. another thing that was prescient, it's in portrait mode. So that, you know, prescient. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it's like this n- naked, it just gives you boobs. It's like, it's like Joel Silver was like, we, we promised the kids boobs. Give them the boobs, you know, and because uh, we, we didn't get any boobs in the sex scene, so we need the, those boobs. I can imagine Terrible. that studio note too. Like, uh, you call this a sex scene? <laughs> it's uh, flashing lights. It's, Terrible. There, Terrible. There's a couple scenes uh, that just serve no narrative purpose. Like, I, I just want to <laughs> point out, like, there's a couple just straight up comedy scenes. Like, one of the scenes he goes down. They're in the sewers. They're like, you know, where the Morlocks live, essentially, with Dennis Leary. Yep. And then there's a yeah, long scene yeah. where he orders a burger, and it turns out to be made of rat meat. There's no narrative <laughs> function to the scene. It's like a five-minute, like, <laughs> SNL sketch in the middle of the movie, and then they just go on to the next scene. I'm like, that has... You could have just cut it. Like, it doesn't well, advance he, He'd the rather have rat burger than, you know, whatever vegan Taco Bell yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah I, guess, on, guess, it I guess it's character. Yeah. Really. I guess it's character. You know what? American. It's a load-bearing yeah. character scene. You can't take it out. <laughs> yes, come on, <laughs> dude. This is screenwriting 101, man. You cannot edit that out. You cannot edit that out. <laughs> speaking, uh, of, speaking of things they edited out, uh, I, I, I actually don't remember. Did they mention in the movie that he had a daughter? Yes. yes, several yes. times. They did, he, right? he, yeah. he comes, he wakes up from cryosleep. Yeah. He goes, my wife, where is she? And they explain to him that his wife died in the great quake of 2010. And then he, and then he pauses and thinks for a little, and he's like, my daughter, what about her? Like the first thing is the wife. <laughs> he doesn't go, my wife and daughter, where are they? He goes, where's my wife? And there's a I'm very incredibly wangly... horny right now. I'm out of freeze. <laughs> I, just, I need something. I only have so many words. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was apparently a scene that they filmed with 
the daughter, uh, played by Elizabeth Ruscio. They do seem and, to be setting up yes. him meeting her. He keeps yeah. asking, like in the car ride with Sandra Bullock, he keeps like, oh, I don't even know what I would do if I saw my daughter these days. <laughs> and and again, in a movie where you set up one timeline and then you leap forward 30 years, <laughs> for a movie that does that, it does very little to pay, to any, any setups and payoffs of that <laughs> mm-hmm. premise, you know? Did you yeah. guys uh, hear about the sequel stuff? Because that was floating around last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the, it was theoretically going to be like the daughter was in the sequel, uh-huh. right? Mm. Is, my, but, is my understanding? Uh, Meryl Streep Meryl as the daughter. <laughs> what? Was going to be the daughter, yeah. I, I, wow. I heard that Meryl uh, Streep what, what herself was, was spreading that rumor. Like, she wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> what was uh, fascinating, again, this is an interview at Vulture. We'll link to it in the show notes with uh, Alison Wilmore and the writer of uh, the movie, is that uh, apparently when they reference the daughter, uh, I'll just read a quote here. It says uh, that, like, um, uh, this woman, Elizabeth Ruscio, ends up playing Stallone's daughter. Uh, quote, it's a tender scene and it just stopped the movie dead. So Joel Silver's like, cut it, just cut it. Yeah. And so we cut the scene out and I tell you, all our first test screenings, everyone thought Sandra Bullock was the daughter. Yeah. So when mm. they're about to have sex, the whole audience is like, oh no, end quote. That's Which uh, <laughs> I didn't, that, that had that never occurred to me. We're going to avoid this joint. Yeah. yeah. That... But apparently, Apparently, a lot of the audience thought they were going to watch like an earlier version of Old Boy in yeah. this movie. <laughs> um, I didn't jump I do, to that I do at all. think that they, they had this yeah. opportunity to do all kinds of fun stuff with that, of of all these people. I mean, there's a one dude that he runs into in the in the uh, police office, uh, police station who's like, hey, whoa, I can't believe it's you. But we had no setup of that character at all. Uh, yeah, just, I was like, was that character earlier on in the movie? Did we no. see him at all? Was no. he in the, maybe he was in the helicopter? I think he was one of the helicopter guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe he the, he was the helicopter, helicopter guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was talking with people before his like big climactic scene, right. the first scene of the movie. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's pilot one in the script, probably. <laughs> right. I guess it's also you know it's kind of a movie with an interesting science fiction premise, but it's made by people who have no interest in science fiction. I think right. It's <laughs> so not, true. It's not an ideas movie. Let's just say charitably, it's so yeah, not an ideas movie. It's like it's really just an excuse to get Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes in weird outfits fighting. You know, like it's not like yeah. they're not interested in, you know, it's not you know, it's not like Ryan Johnson making the movie or, so, or like, you know, so, or a sci-fi director or someone, you know, yeah. just being like interested in the ideas of it. It's kind of like, yeah. Well, I, I, I do think the idea is the one that that Jeff brought up, which is that there is this anxiety about, uh, you know, this culture war and uh, American masculinity being under threat, basically. That, and and I think the reason why we never read any think pieces about it at the time, other than the fact that, you know, it was hard to read think pieces at the time, <laughs> is that it was just so normalized. Like, of course, of course, Sylvester Stallone's the good guy. You know, like, why why wouldn't we want him to inject some feelings into things uh, and, like, eat rat hamburgers and beat up people? You know, like, why wouldn't we want that? Like, the, people wouldn't even have thought otherwise that we would want anything else than that, right? Is, right. is kind of my, my thinking. But I agree with you, Alan, that there's nothing in here uh, in t- about, like... Uh, the, the science fiction ideas aren't, aren't particularly compelling. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the tech in the movie. You know, um, uh, Jeff, I think you pointed out right that there's some things that the movie got really correct, right? Uh, screens everywhere. That's something it got correct. Self-driving cars. We're not even there yet, but we're heading in that direction. What are you talking um, about? I have one. <laughs> yeah. uh, there you go. Je- Jeff, please do not use that as a self-driving car. You're, you're almost there. but uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, It's bad if you do. It's I bad if you do. 
I haven't been in my car in weeks, but yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to worry about that. Yeah. The the government uh, having the capability to track everyone's every movement, you know, like that's not necessarily something mm-hmm. that's too far off of reality as well. Uh, the one thing in the movie that I thought, oh man, that's so cool. We haven't gotten that yet is the uh, the accidental foam stuff, right? Like when you yeah. get in a car crash, like foam fills up your car and people have experimented with that kind of thing. We also yes. saw a similar vision in like... Uh, uh, the Incredibles. Remember when, like, yeah. Mr. Incredible is getting bombarded by all those foam things mm-hmm. to immobilize him? Uh, like, th- that's pretty cool. That's like, that's cool. oh, that's a pretty cool idea that we yeah. haven't thought up yet. Um, Reinflatable right. tires. We kind of have that. Yeah. 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 You have, so, yeah, yeah, run tires that you can have a little puncture on. It's great. Al- yeah. Alan, any uh, tech in the movie that you thought was particularly interesting? I, I was going to point out the foam thing because I remember that yeah. from as a kid. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, this is the part where the foam, the, the, the foam comes out. It's like, that. why do we remember that stuff, man? It's like, it's so weird. Like, why is that stuff in our brain? <laughs> it's because when you're, you're a kid, it's like, you know, the, the lyrics to every song you've heard. It's it, it's just so yeah. strange, but I definitely remember that foam. And, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of fun to see it again. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's a good idea. The... Uh... Alan kind of referenced this with the end of the movie and him just sort of taking Sandra Bullock and kissing her. But earlier on, it, it the sex the sex scene was very much, uh, uh, I would like to have sex with you. Are you uh, agreeing to this process? From Sandra Bullock's yeah. point of view, you know, like the, the future is this place where we need to be very clear about giving our approval to this process. I thought that was, you know. Kind of accurate. Wow. Too. Demolition Man presages COVID and Me Too. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything Demolition Man can't I mean, do? Yeah. <laughs> really crazy. But yeah. The other scene, the other scene that I absolutely love in this movie is a total like throwaway blink and you miss it moment, but it made me laugh so hard in rewatching because I didn't remember that it happened. Is the he sees the the um the shot of himself on the TV screen saving the little girl from the building. And they go, <laughs> they go, uh, you know, you, you caused $400,000 of damage uh, to someone that was uh, ransomed for $20,000. What do you say to that? And the little girl turns to the reporter and goes, fuck you. And, and he's like, good answer, girl. And I was like, that is the mentality of this movie in a nutshell. You know, that is, it's just. Well, hilarious. so the girl's right. She she was totally right. I I will say the opening scene of this movie, how dumb are the cops? Like (laughs) he he is thrown into cryo jail because there are other bodies there because the heat scan didn't detect it. Huh, I wonder why. I wonder why the heat scan didn't detect the bodies. Could it be? (laughs) The, the insane supervillain had dead bodies there. I don't know. No, let's just throw this guy in jail for 50 years. What? It, it seems like uh, you, you, like I just knew I was in for a good time on the rewatch because I always <laughs> like when people say the title of the movie. like, And it, he, he, it happens almost immediately. <laughs> like five minutes yeah. in, he says, I'm tired of this demolition man shit. They say the title. I was like, oh, man, it's not even in the middle. It's like, it's right there. I love it. The movie like peaked too early in my opinion. Yeah. You know, like you got to build up to that kind of thing in my It experience. takes a maniac to catch a maniac, you guys. Yeah, yeah, he says a tagline, essentially. Indeed, indeed. All right, anything else we want to say about this film? I'll say uh, another <laughs> favorite line from the movie is after <laughs> uh, Sylvester Stallone's character delivers a uh, one line. There's some couple couple good one-liners, you know? We were talking about how when we reviewed another 90s film, Judgment Night, the one-liners were pretty rough in that movie, right? Uh, I think Emilio Estevez says something like, 
you're on your own, pal. Like that's his, that's his one liner in that movie. Uh, and in this one, uh, Spartan says, "You're going to regret this for the rest of your life." <laughs> yeah. Both seconds of it. Uh, yeah, that's not which bad. Is just cla- that's... I miss I miss the '90s one liner. Yeah. It's, so it's so clunky. It's so clunky. I mean, it's so I, I, I don't know, man. And then Huxley says, "You are even better live than on Laserdisc." <laughs> Uh, oh, and the joy, joy way you paused to make a glib witticism before doing battle with that strangely weaponed scrap. It was so, so dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the kind of which... di- dialogue that Sandra Bullock had to deliver and not sound like mouth poop. And you know, and she charming. does it somehow. She's very charming. Yeah, there's she's a real, so, there's actually a pretty bad Stallone line. I actually wrote this down. It's like he's fighting Simon Phoenix, uh, Wesley Snipes' character, and then he punches him or something. And says, "You forgot to say Simon says." It's like, all right, guys, like, <laughs> oh, just get, yeah. get, cut that one out of there. Like, just, just, just don't have it in the edit. Like, just don't use it. You don't have to use it. You can. You can fix it in the edit. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You know, that's the thing. I, I know they're terrible, but uh, we don't really get them anymore. Yeah. Right? Like, we don't, I miss them. I, I miss them. Like, maybe John Wick had a couple of them, you know, but like, I don't know. Like, there's very few of those lines anymore in movies, and I kind of appreciate how cheesy and terrible they were. I know. You got to have an ironic That's, that's why we have the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah, like, that's it's, true. It's what it exists for. And that's why yeah. people love them. That's the only reason. Those one-liners. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Well, anything else we want to say about this movie? Any other aspects to bring up? Overall, had a great experience watching it again. Uh, and I do think it's a movie that wasn't appreciated as much in its time as it should have been. I think uh, it has stood the test of time. And uh, <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. It's a fun yeah, one. I think it was appreciated just as well as it should have been. Yeah. I like that. No, I mean, because it was, it was like, it got like a, you know, I mean, who knows how accurate Rotten Tomatoes is going back yeah. that long, but it's like, it has like a 60-something percent Rotten Tomatoes. Like, it was not well regarded. It didn't do very well at the box office. Yeah, that sounds and about now, right. That sounds about right. <laughs> it's but terrible, now people dude. Love it's a terrible movie. People it's love this movie. It's not a good movie. movie, Dave. Are you guys kidding me? It's I'm terrible. I'm completely <laughs> earnest. <laughs> All right, well... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We disagree about this. Spent this whole <laughs> hour, Dave, thinking uh, we love this movie. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I, you know, honestly, I, I would say you're both right. It's a fun rewatch, and it's maybe not that good. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. All right. Well, there we go. Uh, all right, that's going to bring us to the end of uh, of this week's episode of the podcast. You can find more episodes of this show at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast.gmail.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger, who has a new video essay out about passengers. Check it out at SlashFilm.com. And our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. This episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Stay tuned uh, to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Alan Yang... Where can people find your work on the internet this week? Right now, you can watch a movie I wrote and directed called Tiger Tail. It's on Netflix, so if you search for Tiger, just keep searching and then write tail in. <laughs> Don't search King. Just write in Tiger Tail, and you'll find uh, uh, the movie I made. So uh, um, now I got I got to ask you, actually. You know, did you know at the time that you're making this movie that it was going to be released? shortly after a movie called Tiger King and were you worried about it? So that? I had no inkling because this movie there's a spoilerific reason why the movie's called that. Then I finished making the movie, we 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 put it together and we had we were talking about the release date and then very late in the process they were like just so you know your movie comes out in April. There's a documentary or something that comes out in March. And we had, look, a couple months before Tiger King, no one knew what that was or no one knew. You're like, and, documentary? Right. And yeah, exactly. Who's going to watch a documentary? Yeah. And I was like, well, I have no idea what this is. And, you know, Netflix like doesn't promote things that highly until, you know, a couple weeks before they come out. And you don't know if it's a hit. You don't know, like, 
that Tiger King's a hit or making a murder's a hit basically till it comes out and then it, it sweeps the world and I just it just made me laugh it was a funny thing to talk about in interviews and stuff I, I don't think there's any confusion but you know we'll, we'll, we'll draft we'll draft their their heat like a remora under a shark and people searching tiger and their fingers slipping sure why not you know how there's like uh, there's all these there's a whole like industry of movies that make their box art to look like other movies right and uh it's like they're, they're hoping you're looking for 1917 uh, and they'll design their like font and like the graphics yeah. on the thing to look kind of like 1917, but it's not. Any, it's a completely different movie that's about a similar topic. Um, that's kind of what Tiger Tail is right now. Is what it's, I'm trying uh, to say. One hundred percent. I'm just actively spreading the rumor that Joe Exotic is in the movie. You just have to look for him. So just you know, ninety-five percent of viewers of Tiger Tail are failed Tiger King viewers. Yeah, and, I think and the really. weird thing is they're loving it. <laughs> they're like, "Wow, this is this has like Wong Kar Wai references." Like, no. <laughs> All right, uh, Devendra Harder work if I'm more of your work on the internet. Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about tech at Engadget.com, and check me out on the Engadget podcast. How about you, Jeff Kanata? Well, you can listen to me talk about video games on a show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. I do a comedy science show called We Have Concerns that you can find at wehaveconcerns.com, and I do a live play Dungeons & Dragons show it's all about epic storytelling. You can find that uh, on YouTube by searching for The Dungeon Run or as an audio podcast by searching for The Dungeon Run or by watching us live Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific time at caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. And if you want to hear me talk with Alan Yang about his new movie, Tiger Tail, check out Culturally Relevant at culturallyrelevantshow.com or wherever your podcasts can be downloaded. Next week, we no, we didn't actually time this out like this. We didn't, we didn't know we were going to review two dumb action movies in a row. Uh, but the current plan, which may change, uh-huh. is going to be Extraction, the Netflix action film with Chris Hemsworth, produced by the Russo brothers, I believe. Sure. Uh, so that's coming out on Netflix, and uh, you uh, should check it out sure. uh, because the we're trailer be looks it. pretty good. I was just saying yeah. that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see if uh, this is going to be more like Six Underground or more like uh, Triple Frontier. <laughs> I guess those there's really little difference between those two movies. But anyway. How dare you? <laughs> Extraction. Going to be the review next week. Uh, it's going to be on Netflix. Check it out. And thanks for listening to the Slash Filmcast. Stay tuned for an After Dark where we will be discussing devs. In the meantime, see you later. This is your station. Bye. What am I actually doing here? I'm not going to tell you. Don't worry. You're going to figure it out. The last time I saw him, he was headed toward Devs. And then he disappears. Something bad happened to him. You know what happened to him. If you came for answers, Ask me what you don't know. What is devs? This is the only principle you need to understand. Nothing ever happens without a reason. Everything was determined by something prior. They're fanatics. We need the police. You want to take them down? It's impossible. You knew I was going to come here. The sense that you were participating in life was only ever an illusion. 
Life is just something we watch unfold. Welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark. This is time of the show where we talk about a variety of different topics uh, that we didn't get to during the regular show. One thing we want to do before we get to our discussion topic today, which is devs, uh, is we want to thank all the people who've donated to the podcast recently. A big thanks to Mesfin Mibrate, Byron Chu, Mary P. from North Bergen, New Jersey, and Joseph S., who writes in, uh, You all always manage to brighten up my week which we all need right now. Also, fun fact, 21 Bridges probably doesn't show too many bridges because it was filmed in my hometown of Philadelphia, not New York. Hmm. Uh, thanks for solving that mystery, Joseph. I, I don't know if you guys remember, we talked about 21 Bridges a few weeks ago on the podcast. We did, no, we did a very in-depth analysis <laughs> of the plot and structure of 21 Bridges. Uh, you counted was, every bi- bridge and like named them yeah. individually and told <laughs> us like when they were built. It was amazing. The most was useful, so The most useful dissection of... The structure, plotting, script mm-hmm. writing process of Twenty One Bridges that anyone could expect or want. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, thank you very much for that donation, uh, Joseph. And also, Bobby from Flowood, Mississippi, wrote in with a very generous donation as well. He writes, uh, "I have listened to every one of your shows. You guys feel like buds I have known for years. I love hanging out with you guys, especially the After Dark episodes. I listen to many podcasts every day as I operate heavy equipment." Whoa. And yours is both very informative and extremely enjoyable. The best out there. Thanks for making my days go better. That one comes from Bobby writing from Mississippi. Clearly, uh, Bobby clearly hasn't yeah. read our uh, our warning label. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I would not recommend you listen to the Slash Filmcast while you operate heavy machinery. Yeah. Just doesn't seem like a good idea. I thought that was a that was a given. I thought people understood that. <laughs> I mean, we we all can't even operate our computers correctly sometimes yeah. while recording the podcast. I can't so, operate amazing. light equipment. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You can't operate light equipment. You can't operate audio equipment, Jeff, as we learned a few weeks <laughs> that ago. That has been very, very well documented. <laughs> yes. But thank you so much for your donations. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. Never donate to this show if it in any way causes you hardship. But if you do want to throw some cash away, that'd be great. Um, and also, if you want to support our show for $0, just go to the Apple Podcast listing. Take five seconds. Leave us a star rating. It really does help. And it's a way to support the show without uh, needing to pay any money whatsoever. So uh, thanks to all the people who donated uh, this week. It's very much appreciated. Okay. Let's get to our After Dark topic today, which is devs. Devs concluded its eight-episode limited run on Hulu recently. And uh, I will read a plot summary of devs. Uh, and I, I think we just are going to have to say we're going to spoil the, the show, right? Yeah, and I like think we, it's yeah. pretty, yeah. pretty, if you're at all interested in devs, watch it. Don't don't listen to this first. Don't listen to it. Why are you listening to this? I mean, most people- Why are people, you listening to this? Most yeah. people have already turned the show off. Except the mystery. <laughs> Go listen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, most people have shut this off like five minutes into our Demolition Man conversation. So. <laughs> yeah, or, or didn't even download this one because they're like, Demolition Man? <laughs> Devs is an FX limited series that focuses on a young software engineer named Lily Chan who works for Amaya, a cutting-edge technology company based in Silicon Valley. After her boyfriend Sergey's apparent suicide, Lily suspects foul play and begins to investigate. She quickly realizes that all roads lead to Forrest, Amaya's enigmatic CEO, and Devs, the company's secret development division. In Lily's quest to discover the truth, she uncovers a technology-based conspiracy that could change the world. That's a summary from the internet. Uh, so, 
we've watched all all three of us have watched all eight episodes of Devs. Uh huh. It, it is a very thought provoking show, in my opinion. Lots to think about. Lots to talk about. We got a lot of requests from people, like please talk about Devs. And I wanted to talk with Devs about you guys, like independently of getting the requests. So I'm mm-hmm. glad we're doing this right now. So uh, let's just like. Uh, Quickly, let's do the overall thoughts, and then like we got to start diving into de- details, specifically the finale, because there's just so much to to rip into there. But mm-hmm. overall thoughts on the series, Divin Your Hardware. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I love Alex Garland's science fiction. I think that's where I am. Like when he is directing and writing his own thing, as he has been since Ex Machina, and he also did Annihilation, which I genuinely you know love. He makes movies that are really for him exploring big ideas um, in a way that feels very unique to him. And I'm just really digging it. Like this is a series that's very slow and methodical, but it's always engaging with like these high level ideas and things I've often wondered about. Um, I actually had a very nice chat with him for uh, Engadget. Uh, We recorded like a half an hour interview. So go check that out uh, on the Engadget podcast. But he is a guy like when I sit down and talk with him, I also talked with him before Ex Machina. I swear I could sit there and just talk with him for hours because he is a guy who is like he is like the sci fi version of the most interesting man in the world. You know, because he always has these ideas floating around. He's always trying to do new things with them. So, yeah, I found this fascinating. I'm somebody, you know, I studied philosophy. I'm very interested in AI and where our tech world is going to leave us. Um, I write about tech and I don't I barely like have a decent understanding of what quantum computing means. But him tying it to ideas like determinism and free will, I just found endlessly fascinating. And while it's also doing all this, it's also like a great espionage thriller. You know, it's also a great murder mystery. It is so many things all at once. I I absolutely love it. I love all the performances. Like this is uh, Emmy level work from Nick Offerman, uh, who is somebody, you know, he is a billionaire CEO who is dealing with the most crushing loss imaginable. And he sells it. He sells it so much. And as somebody with a kid, I feel that like I feel his emotion and like how dead he is inside, you know, during the show. So there's so much going on here. I This show turns Zach Grenier, a guy I, I've seen in a whole bunch of shows. He's on The Good Wife and The Good Fight as a very like an asshole, you know, paper pushing lawyer. But he, he's just an asshole. This show turns him into a heavy. Like, this show turns this guy into, like, the security guard who's out there, like, kicking ass and executing Russian spies. Like, it's it's insane. Like, I, I'm just amazed at every cool thing the show does. So I am yeah. totally on board. Even if it doesn't fully come together at the end, I know a lot of people had issues with the ending, but I, I loved it. Edward Norton's emasculated boss in Fight Club yes. is who uh, Zach yes. Grenier is, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he's a heavy in this movie. Plays does a really good job of it. Jeff Kanata, overall thoughts on Devs? Yeah, I think it is one of the great science fiction series of all time. Uh, and I said that thinking it would be a big deal. And then I kind of started Googling around. It doesn't have much competition, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because most most science fiction on television is an adventure tale, right? We got Star Trek and we've got Battlestar Galactica. And we've got you know, all these science fiction ideas while... Many of them have great, even Doctor Who and all that stuff can have great sci-fi ideas in them. They're almost always in the form of an adventure tale. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that speaks to the, the form of television as a serialized medium, but or as an ongoing medium. 
But one of the things I love most about this is that it is a limited series. And so it is, it is, it has the ability to really have a beginning, middle and end. Yeah, from the there, from the get go, no, no sequels like likely coming. Yeah, you know, no this need, is a single story. No need to set up something else. We're telling a tale, and I love that about it. Uh, and it also, I think, speaks to the golden age of television that we're in, where this kind of thing can exist on TV now. Which this would be a film in the in in another era, and the fact that it has the room to breathe as an eight hour miniseries mm-hmm. is is so great and so appreciated. Um, but it is truly a great sci fi. Show. I am in the camp that it doesn't stick the landing, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in its place, and we will get to all of that and, and pick it apart. But so much of what this show does, it does mm-hmm. extremely well, and it it weaves a tale. It it tells a yarn, and I love that aspect of it. It's also a show about photography. I mean, it is just exquisitely photographed and the imagery in it is indelible. The look and feel of the technology, the look and feel of the forbidden place uh, is quite striking and it lingers. It takes its time. It has eight hours Mm -hmm. to really wallow or it's a negative connotation, but really uh, (laughs) uh, enjoy the the feeling, the look of things. And there are Mm -hmm. some shots I, I... throughout this would turn to my wife and go, oh, that's a poster. That is, I mean, there are shots of San Francisco. There are shots of, you know, even (laughs) visual effects shots in this show that are just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. The way- The image of the Amaya office campus, which has like a 100 foot tall statue of Forrest's daughter is so, it is so weird and random, but also like haunting. Yeah. And it's so many things. But also all I, at once. I don't yeah. even know if that was a real thing. My wife was convinced that that never was real. Oh, yeah. It probably wasn't real, but it is still like the imagery of like them. Their like little meeting area yeah. outside is like at her feet. Like they're, they're just like, you know, here I think, yeah. at, beneath the gods or something. It's amazing. I, I, I think that was a failure of CG, to be honest with you. Like I, I actually, I don't think it's supposed to be ambiguous that it's an actual physical statue. Um, yeah, yeah. It's you're supposed to look at it and think, oh, he built a massive statue of his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looked almost like a hologram. Like CG just didn't quite sell it for me. It looked almost like a hologram. I was like, is that really there? So I agree with you that it didn't really fully work in the way it was supposed to, in my opinion. But uh, I'll, I'll share my thoughts briefly about this, and then we can dive into the the final episode. I mean, I think that overall. Uh, I really appreciated the show. Uh, it, it, it makes some decisions that I think are pretty baffling, and I do think it's an acquired taste. It's not something I'd recommend for everyone mm-hmm. because you know every episode starts with often minutes of just abstract imagery that frequently is never explained. Love it, and, love it, my jam. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it, you know it, your patience level with that is going to dictate whether this is a show you're going to enjoy or not. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> I, I've seen some people say that this is a show that should have been a movie and I'm, I'm kind of curious, like what would it have been like if it was a movie? I, I actually think that, uh, it might've been better as a movie. I don't know that there was eight episodes worth of story to tell. Mm. Instead, there's just a lot of, um, 
I, I don't think there is any episodes there's worth mood. the story, but what, there's mood. yeah, there's a lot of mood and atmosphere, which is itself valuable, you know. Yeah. It, and if yeah. that's something that you enjoy, then certainly uh, uh, you'll appreciate this as well. But that, that is the David Lynch vibe. Like I love how he's a pre- he's taking that sort of like aesthetic and approaching it uh, with science fiction. There's not you know two seasons worth of story in Twin Peaks, but you know <laughs> yeah, no, that's the fair. experience fair. and like what you're going through still makes the journey worth it for me. Also, it's a good compare, great comparison. Yeah. Also, ahead, I mean, we're, we're in full spoiler territory, right? Yeah, mm. we're in full spoiler okay, territory. Okay, so the idea that this is a story about people, for the most part, not our not our leads, but it involves uh, very big characters who know everything that's going to happen. Yep. Th- that is a mood. And I mm-hmm. love how this movie indulges itself in letting that land on them. They are like the performances uh, that, like you said, Nick Offerman is extraordinary. And um, what, Alison Pill. Uh, so good. Both so good. of them, once you get to realizing that they live lives where there is no mystery, they are it, – it, I love how it examines that feeling that one must get to when there is no more surprise. When there is no more wondering what the next moment will bring, it is they are devoid of humanity. They are empty shells, empty vessels walking through a prescripted moment to moment. This idea that knowing the future is a curse is a it, it, it steals away any joy that they have, and their performances are extraordinary to deliver that. And I bring that up now as a way to say that I think fundamentally that mood. That the that the show lingers in so frequently is that is this like settling of uh, sort of rectifying the the uh, the the time and space as a as a function you know you're you're sitting there looking at just uber close ups of plants <laughs> you know mm-hmm. or a, 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 a you know a shot of the the mountainside with some some mist on it and it's like. All of that, I think, builds to this crescendo that the show is going for. And I I understand the idea that it feels like fluff. But to me, all of that felt like momentum, especially mm-hmm. knowing where we arrive. Mm. I wouldn't describe it as fluff, but, you know, that's a very fair point. My My issue with the performances are I agree with you that there's something very interesting about the idea of somebody who knows the future and then that affecting – their overall demeanor and affect, right? Like that just transforms who you are as a person. But what didn't work about the show for me is that everyone acts like that, you know, and even people who don't know the future. And so I, I don't know why like Lily has the same speaking style as well, Forrest. She, like show. her character is somebody who's described as always being a bit removed from other people. Like that's her whole deal with her ex-boyfriend who she treats like garbage, basically but he he's still you know enthralled with her and everything but she is she's not like a fully she's not a human engaging with the world and the people around her you know yeah, and i found that there, there yeah, are similarities but I, feel like, there. I, yeah. I guess i just feel like everyone is like you know kenton is like that and even jamie sometimes is like it, it's it is, like everyone has this I, kind of it's like very like kubrickian mm-hmm. way of speaking where yeah they, everyone's pausing sure, and sure, sure. You know, i think and you're and right it's just Dave, like, i agree with you yeah. it, it is it is a very self-serious and a self-indulgent manner of delivery from everybody and it does seem to be directed that way 
Uh, yeah. and, and I think it's on the verge of being too much, but for me, it, it mostly worked. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah, and I was able to look past it, but I think like anyone, if you, if anyone popped in and watched like one scene from the middle of this thing, mm-hmm. they might say that it is stilted to the point of parody, you know? But and the, I think that's, that'd be a reasonable reaction. I do want to, the only other okay, thing, the only other thing that I really had a problem with before, and, and, and I'll just say like, I'm one of the people that loved the ending of this uh, the show. So like, I'm kind of saying some of the things I had had gripes with before I dive into like what I love about the ending is, um, the other, other thing is I just found the storytelling in the first two episodes to be completely baffling. Like why would he tell the story this way mm-hmm. where you see the death happen of the boyfriend and then you're in Lily's perspective and then you're, um, learning every, you're waiting like two, basically two episodes for her to catch up to your level of knowledge. And, that just didn't, it's like telling the matrix from the perspective of Trinity as opposed to Neo. Like that just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I you know, if I was being charitable, I would say there's um, the, the show is trying to make a meta point about what it's like when you know everything, but then it doesn't do that the whole time. It doesn't do that in later episodes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I, so, I kind of love that the show, like in the first episode, you, you see these people are murderers. Life doesn't matter to them. You know, like they're the only thing that matters is this work and whatever mysterious work this is, is more important than, you know, one random Russian guy's life. So I do like I like that that wasn't a mystery because I feel like in any normal show it would be like uh, she is she is the girlfriend. She's trying to discover the murder. And it's like a big thing like that. No, like we know we know the solution. We're just watching her try to figure it out. And I think that process is interesting. Well, I would I would totally agree with Dave in that I could see. He goes to Devs. We have this incredible mm-hmm. sequence where he's brought into Devs. It's this amazing, visually arresting thing where he's, you know, he, he through this maglev thing, he goes in, he <laughs> looks at the thing. That, and he, the, that amazing moment where Nick Offerman says, look at the code. You'll figure it out. You'll understand yeah, what yeah. it is. And then if after that, we see him walk to the center of the thing, pour gasoline on himself and set himself on fire. We're like, what the fuck did he see? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you have yeah, her yeah, yeah. try to figure out what, and we think the mystery is, what did right. he see? And then we have the boyfriend go, oh my God, right. look at this loop. And you go, holy shit, it's all fake? Like that would be, I but think, that, a much more I'm interesting I, journey. I think, a traditional, I think a traditional show would do that. Yeah, is the thing. Yeah. Like, I, and I, but I think there's a reason that's a that's most traditional shows do that because I think that's a better way of doing it's it. A, yeah, I, I hear you, but I'm just saying it's it's a different way of telling the same story. I appreciate the ballsiness of just like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. here, this is it. This is what happened. I'm giving you the whole story. Now let's watch this character try to figure it out. You know, step by step. I realize it's not it's not as rewarding, right? You don't get like the the great because like when uh, he recognizes thrill. that the, the flames repeat. That's like a yes. holy shit moment. It's oh, pretty except good. we already knew that they faked it. Yeah, you know, like exactly. so. Ah. Yeah. But the yeah. way they, I like for me that process. It was like the way they faked it. The way like he figures it out, and also like, man, these people have like a reality deducing quantum computer, and they can't like create unique flame models. What the hell is going on? <laughs> that is pretty there? funny. They kind don't have the, be- the budget of Demolition Man. Yeah, we know. we just got this from Shutterstock, and uh, we didn't go for premium. <laughs> you know, all right. Let, let's uh, let's talk about episode eight. Wait, 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 wait. Um, before we do, before oh, yeah. we do, I, I have one more thing to say. Uh, because yeah, my ahead. favorite moment in this show is in episode, I want to say six. Uh, it is one of my favorite scenes in anything I've seen this year and in quite a long time. 
And it is the kind of scene that I always love. I always devour. And that is the extended sequence when the two women are sitting at the kitchen table and she's like, mm. ask me about devs. Yep. Yeah. That the way yep. that information is teased out and intercut with the two guys outside just sort of shooting the shit and passing time and playing frisbee with each other. But how dude, my fucking favorite thing in all I think it's like my favorite thing. It really is, especially in sci-fi. You like two people sitting at a table talking to each other, Jeff. I think we've established Yes. <laughs> but you. also yeah. but it's how they talk. It is the yeah. it is the I'm on the edge of my seat finding out the next bit of information and it is this very methodical, systematic explanation of how the rules of this world work. And it mm -hmm. is it is this back and forth, this tete-a-tete, -tete, mm -hmm. who's smarter, who's playing the chess game, and w where are we going? What does it reveal about everything we've seen up to this point and done in this very calm, very methodical manner? Oh, my God, I eat that shit up. And it, it is so <laughs> – it is done so well in the show. Like that mm – -hmm. that – that unfortunately for me was the climax of this show and it never achieved those heights again. But that mm -hmm. sequence, that like, okay, here's what it's really about. And and ending a moment on, unfortunately, this is where it gets very difficult for you. You know, and then we cut to the boys again. It's like, oh, I'm just like, I want <laughs> to know more. And you're, it's drama, dude. It's high drama. Just in the most calm, deliberate circumstances, I, I just fucking loved it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My so, one so of good. the moment that struck me prior to the last episode was I think it was in episode seven when uh, Kenton breaks in, kills her, shoots her boyfriend, and then is about to strangle her to death when like the homeless guy yeah. yep. comes in and reveals that he's a Russian so agent. So good. And how that and reveal happens? We just start speaking Russian. I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> really, really cool. And then, but there's this quote he says that just really stopped me in my tracks when he says, quote, the most important thing is you understand the life you once had is gone. The choice you have is about the life you have next, end quote. And uh, that just really stopped me in my tracks because mm -hmm. we are all right now going through a life-changing, world-altering event right now um, with the coronavirus pandemic. And... Uh, this you know in this obviously it's a very different nature thing that lily's going through in the show but she's just gone through something that is going to change the rest of her life no matter what and um and it's about like hey you like you have basically a few minutes to accept that everything that you once knew about life is over and that mm -hmm. you like but you have a choice as to what comes next Th that is self-help uh via alex garland by the way like a very direct statement with no emotion attached to us like dude you gotta do this thing yeah. Otherwise, yeah. yeah, that's it. We that's and, and, and it's uh, you know in its way, it's a choice that's presented to everyone right now. Yes. Right? It's like yeah. it's you. You're the life you once had is gone. The choice you have is the life you have next. And uh, anyway, that just really it, it was so, a great moment. I, I remember turning to my wife and going right before that. It's so funny. Right before that, I turned to my wife and I go, "It's so weird. We spent so much time with this this homeless guy character. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that seems weird, you know." Uh, it seems yeah, like yeah, wasted, yeah. wasted moves. I don't understand why. Seems like a setup yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 it's great. Yeah. It's so good. It's like, I also want to throw a shout out to uh, just the music and the sound design yes. of the show because the soundtrack uh, is great too. Yeah, yeah. Ben Listen Salisbury, Jeff yeah. Barrow, the insects, like the song selection, ben, so good, so good, yeah, so good, really all great. around. Yeah, really great, just yeah. like 
I love the aesthetic. I love Garland's aesthetic. I love... Um, he apparently had a very hard time making Annihilation, and I can understand why. If you remember the like crazy distribution deal that happened with that, like the studio lost faith in it. Uh, it went Netflix outside of America and did very poorly in theaters, and like Garland was super frustrated. So I can understand like why he wanted to tell this story this way via Hulu. And yeah, yeah, it could probably be a little shorter and be a little more focused. But man. I, I love that we live in like, this is peak TV. I love that somebody of his like style and intellect um, and just like grand ambition can create eight episodes of an amazing story of something that like nobody has really told before too. Yeah. Like it's so unique. It is so, we've seen so many different future explorations, but nobody being like, this, you know, quantum computing could be something huge. And here's one, you know, potential way. We don't think this is in reality. We have no fucking clue what quantum computing is going to do because the way computers work right now, uh, you know, it's all it's all like uh, ones and zeros, right? It's all very binary. Quantum computing works in a way that, uh, like, kind of in a way that quantum physics does. It's so we have no clue. We don't. We think it's going to help with encryption. We think it's going to help with a lot of things, but we are dealing with a level of technology that is basically magic. And I love that he took that and just ran with it. It was like, okay, what if we could, it's sort of like simulation theory. You know, what if, what if you could figure out the simulation, then you could figure out that, oh, you know, yeah, we're living in a machine or we're all living on a predetermined path or something. Uh, I, I love it. I, I love the idea. I'm just running with it. But yeah, let's, let's go to the I, ending. I, I will say that I, you know, I've done some reading about this topic after I watched the show and uh, <laughs> that I agree with you. The, the ideas that I think are most interesting because they are so close to reality mm -hmm. are the ideas like, are we living in a simulation? Yeah. Uh, what is free will? What is determinism? Are, is there such thing as a multiverse? Those are all actually like really interesting questions that people are really exploring in our reality right now. Um, but the the idea of devs or deus is depicted in the show is by, by the way a great great freaking such movie. a cool reveal just like yeah yeah yeah, mean, like cherry. yeah. fucking cool I mean, dude come on that was fucking it's, cool it's it's glorious yeah, like i mean it's cool in the sense of like all that other moody moody atmospheric stuff is cool which is i can understand thinking it's cool but i can also understand thinking the show is way up its own ass um but i mean know, yeah i'm fair, here fair for enough. it i i'm yeah um, totally fine with it yeah but i did think devs is a really weird vague name so i'm glad that mm -hmm. they explained something about it um but uh, apparently, how how quant what quant quantum computing is depicted doing is, is essentially impossible because yes yes uh, for very basic uh, reason, which is that the data set you need is so massive right. uh, that it n no such thing is even possible right now. I mean, I would I would like to point out that this is basically a modern version of one of my favorite book series of all time, which is. The Foundation by Isaac Asimov, who was yes, talking about this yes. shit in the early 60s, uh, which is basically saying, hey, if we had enough data with big enough numbers, we can predict mm -hmm. the future. Um, right. So, they, you know, I, I loved it. And I love that it is <laughs> it is it is firmly anchored in the tech. What is the name of the technology? Was it? it was psychohistory and psychohistory? Yeah. yeah, but like it is, we, it is just that the the amount of data you'd need is so massive, and we don't have the ability to even think about how to store that yet, and we don't even have the ability to predict weather three weeks from now, right? Sure. Now. You know what I mean? So it's sure. like the idea that we could build this whole thing. I don't is, know how many weathermen are using quantum computing though, Dave. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Okay, anyway, <laughs> episode eight. I'm just going to read the plot summary because I think sure. we should just establish what happened. So this is from Wikipedia. Inside the devs labs. 
Forrest shows Lily a projection of what she's about to do. Holding Kenton's gun on Forrest, she leads him into the transportation capsule, leading out of Devs, and shoots him, causing the capsule to crash and killing Lily in the fall. Beyond this point, Devs can see nothing. Forrest tells Lily their actions have been predetermined and that the system's real name is Deus. Lily leads Forrest into the capsule as projected, but as the doors close, she throws the gun away, shocking Forrest. Amazing moment, by the way. <laughs> uh-huh. um, before they can reach the entrance, Stuart overrides the electromagnetic field that suspends the capsule and causes it to crash. Forrest and Lily die. Before he walks away, Stuart tells a devastated Katie that the system had to be stopped. Lily regains consciousness on the day before Sergei joins Devs and finds an empty field where the Devs building once stood and forced playing with his wife and daughter there. He tells her that Katie reconstructed them from the moment of their deaths and that they now exist in a simulation inside the Devs machine where the two of them are the only ones who remember what happened. In the real world, an emotional Katie reveals the Devs system to Senator uh, Lane and asks her to help her uh, keep it turned on. Inside Devs, Lily finds Jamie and hugs him, which he returns. So that's what happens in the finale. Jeff Kanata, you thought this show did not stick the landing. Tell me why. My fundamental issue with the end is that I don't think it pays off why Lily is special. What what allows her to toss the gun when no one else could? Why would not anyone else, uh, you know, Nick Offerman's character or Alison Pill, why wouldn't they have attempted to do something different at any point? Uh, were they unable to do something different? I know he has a speech at one point where he says like, I know what's going to happen, but it's not like I don't, w- I'm not like I'm saying pre-scripted yeah. lines. I'm actually acting on the impulse I want to do. But wouldn't you, knowing what you had to do, attempt to, it it wasn't. So- I, I think so. So they did bring up a scene earlier on, like when the greater team figures out like what is happening in that weird like you know theater room. They do like try to break it, and I think it the idea is that even even when you are acting, trying you know to break the simulation, um, that that is still like part of the simulation. Like the the very act of you knowing it is something the simulation predicted. I get that, but so, I wasn't. I, I hear. I wasn't sufficiently it's still not clear. I wasn't sufficiently convinced that Lily had yeah, something yeah. special about her. We were just told she's special. It's not. There's not. It would be great. I mean, this is a pat thing, but it would be great if like her love caused it to. You know, there's some thing that is inevitably human caused her to be able to shatter. I. There's just nothing. It just because they said that after this point, we don't see anything. And then she does that. But there's no, mm-hmm. I mean, I liked the explanation that it is basically her eating the forbidden fruit. You know, she's yep. she had the gall to f- not follow instructions. But I I just, I didn't feel like the, the, um, the show, which had, I thought, set up things so very clearly and so very well for most of it. I thought it kind of just punted on the idea of a reason why she is this special unique case that is able to do that. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. It's I think not, it's not, the show doesn't fully support it. I think the idea that she just, she made a choice in a way that nobody else really has before, because I think what's different about her and like Alison Pill's character is that Alison Pill accepts that yeah you know, oh she saw you know she saw how devs works she saw some of the predictions and she just accepted like oh we we did it we can predict the future now therefore everything i see is the only thing you know that will ever happen and maybe there there is something to the idea of somebody who doesn't fully buy into that uh into the mystique of that i also to still believe that there are other choices yeah i also stepping through the logic of that 
of, of that sequence of events, I, I feel like her breaking the determinism, throwing the gun actually changed nothing because for her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for anybody, right? Because it, it, either she kills, uh, what's his bucket? Knock off, knock off forest. She, <laughs> either she kills yeah. forest or the fall kills forest or in, Either way, he's being reborn. The whole plan was for him to be reborn into the machine, right? So mm-hmm. effectively, well, I, her big moment of transgression has no real effect on anything. I actually think that's a feature, not a bug, Jeff. I actually think that that's one of the ideas that Alex Garland's trying to communicate with that scene is that, uh, yes, you can make decisions around the edges, but that sometimes ultimately – the the future is still going to pull you in a specific direction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that regardless of like a tiny change you make, it's still going to be this outcome. I um, I had a different. I think it's a nod to that idea. I mean, I think that's a valid reading. I, I I had a different interpretation. I felt like the the push and pull was between a deterministic world or a multiverse world, which is why we have mm. that entire yep. other character, the young character uh, whose name I don't remember all the names. Um, the young character who was fired. Uh, and then falls off the bridge to prove that there is determinism. And we see that imagery, right. that very yeah. effective. Linden. Linden, yes. Yeah. That very effective imagery throughout of all the different possible ways this this scene could play out when we see multiple versions of characters, you know, taking slight, slight deviations on their walking path or whatever it is to sort of illustrate how there could potentially be this multiverse of infinite, trajectory changes. And I thought that the, the, the fundamental argument was, is there a, a, a range of decisions at the, at each, the, at each, at the point of each, you break off into a new reality, uh, infinitely, or is there one future that is, we step toward without any deviation. And I think the characters Alison Pill and Nick Offerman's characters believe wholeheartedly that there is one future. And in fact, that's yep. why he fires Lyndon. He says, you tried to show me that there's this infinite range when all I want is the one single future. And I thought in that moment we would realize, oh, she can, even if things work out the same, she can show that there are variations along that path. Right. But ultimately- yeah. It meant nothing. And ultimately, it didn't. It didn't have that ramification. It did. They didn't. There was no. It didn't seem like that argument was pursued. It didn't. The show didn't seem to care about that anymore. Even though it had spent a lot of time putting those mm-hmm. juxtaposed with one another. I, I think it's juggling those ideas. Like here's the yeah, thing. Like I don't think I agree, Ad- yeah. Garland is like forming conclusions. That's the thing. Like he's great at asking questions and making you ponder these ideas and. Even like even he can't really say to, you know definitively like what what is what like what is a potentially better view of the world. I think one way to look at it is that like the the past for these people, the past for this world, is maybe that is immutable. You know that's the way it was. And what Forrest got mad at was them using the multiverse theory to like recreate the view of Jesus on the cross, right? Uh, because. At that point, if he was doing that to recreate his daughter, it would not be his daughter anymore. It would be a multiverse version of his daughter. And then we're getting to like Rick and Morty territory. But 
Yeah, I, I don't. Well, I, don't I, I think it's. I think it's simpler than that. I, well, I, I think that first of all, I think you're right, Jeff. That a lot of the show argues for the existence of, uh, existence of yeah. a multiverse visually. Mm-hmm. It argues that, right? There's that really amazing episode where you see the different versions of people walking out. You know, you see Alison Pill walking out of her lecture hall in five different ways and mm-hmm. and also Lyndon. But then but then you see Lyndon falling like a, a hundred times. Yeah. Right? So I think what it's no saying version, is... There's no version of Lyndon not falling. Correct. So I think what it's saying is that like some things are definitely going to happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. And then some things like there might be differences in. Right, that's my interpretation of it. Yeah, it so, does. Like, it does seem like they actually do live in a deterministic universe. I don't think he's saying about the real world, but the fact that they were able to build a machine that can still do this stuff enough to like recreate the past and see the future, like it is, it's sort of implying that, and that leads into like, oh, if they're just living in a simulation, you know, if, if Forrest and uh, Lily are in a simulation, that's is that any different? Than well, the I world dis- they left. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, I disagree with your assertion that they're in a deterministic world because I, I do think that visually the show is trying to tell us they're not. But you know, we we we, we can agree to disagree on that. Let's well, talk about what the- you do, what you just described is the idea that some things can be changed and some things can't. But ultimately, yeah, I think like ultimately, that, that idea. Why would the, that some things can't? Why would, is why would the computer not be able to simulate past that certain point if her changing things or making that decision didn't actually af- change anything that it would simulate? Like that's what I that's the disconnect that I get is like she makes a, mm-hmm. a, a move there that maybe the computer didn't see, but what but ultimately it loops back around to the same thing that would have happened regardless, right? Why why does it break the simulation? I just don't feel like the show gives me a big enough case as to why that's the end of the rules of the universe, as Alison Pill says. Right. Um I, I agree that you're expecting this massive buildup and it doesn't mm-hmm. quite deliver on that. My interpretation of the end is that they stick them both in the simulation, right? Um, and and that essentially that is what devs becomes used for at that point, right? They're, they're no longer using it to make predictions or do anything like that. Um, what is fascinating to me about the ending of this show is the whole show for eight episodes, they're throwing at you these ideas of determinism and fate and do we actually have free will and and it's like we've built a machine that can predict into the past and the future. And then in the last 15 minutes of the show, it just hits you with a sidewinder that like, by the way, this uh, prediction model we have is so detailed that it is indistinguishable from reality, basically. Right? Mm-hmm. That if you were a person in this... Uh, in this model that were created, it would basically be like you're living. It would be you would not be able to tell the difference between yourself in this model and you in real life. And first of all, that's completely fascinating. And then secondly, uh, then sure. what the show does with it with Lily's character finding Jamie at the end uh, after she's already kind of confessed, not necessarily confessed her love for him, but at least like uh, like acknowledge that you know he should be in her life. I just found deeply moving. You know, the idea that you could go back in time, uh, you know, to a time before like all this crazy, terrible things happened to you and, and finally share with people how you actually feel about them and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. um, just a very deep, profound, moving thought. I just felt Uh, like the the much more mind blowing moment for me was when um, the other character points out that because everything is in the box, the box 
is in the box. And there's a box in that box mm-hmm. in the box mm-hmm. and infinitely uh-huh. never turn off the power infinitely never so, turn off the power. right infinitely yeah. so so of course of course there would be i mean i i didn't feel like that was a wallop or a sidewinder moment as you described it at the end because of course if everything is in the box and the box is in the box there is no there is no difference between what we experience in reality and what is experienced four, eight, a million levels deep in the box, mm-hmm. right? It is it is yeah. fundamentally right. the same all the way down infinitely. Mm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, yeah. I, to to I, what I, you were saying, Dave, by the way, I don't, for me, I don't think the, whatever the, if they're trying to build up a love story between Lily and Jamie, I, de- I don't think they really settled on that. Because Jamie just seems like the poor guy who is really, really into this girl who just never really gave him the time of the day. And the ending is like, okay, maybe she's giving him a shot now. Not quite a true love story, but it's more like, well, hey, she gave, let's, she gave let's the whole monologue. She gave the whole monologue welcoming um, him into her bed and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't like chasing feel like a him into an airport or anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it, but it was like I was like, oh, this is really meaningful. Like she's recognized that, like, yeah despite neglecting this person horribly, she did, mm-hmm. uh, she, this person is really who she, she, she should, uh, welcome as part of her life. She, yeah. this person she, should she be made her, like, a logical realization. And she's like, uh, you know, giving him the results of that. <laughs> this, calculation this is as close as, as, uh, yeah. as Alex Garland can get to a love story. Okay. Yeah. I so, guess, I guess. Um, you know, By I'm going to take what I can get. <laughs> I know, I know you didn't like the, the way people are performing, but I really did like Sonuyo Mizuno in the show. She is, a fantastic actress. I don't know if you guys saw Maniac. Maniac, a Carrie Fukunaga TV show. It's on Netflix. Nobody seen it. I, it's it's astounding to me. But she is really good in that show, and she is also uh, she was the dance double for Natalie Portman in Annihilation really? too. Like she oh, was wow. the humanoid. Yeah, nice, nice. So she is like she's and a she was one actor. of the uh, she was one of the robot murderers in uh, Ex Machina as well. Yes, so. mm. yes. Deep Garland um, ties. And she, it was amazing. Is she looks like ten ten years older in that movie than she does in this show? Yeah, uh, which goes to show you. Uh, how much uh, of an impact having a different haircut and also having lines uh, can have on uh, <laughs> your perception of a character's age. For sure. Uh, so, Devendra, any other thoughts on on the finale? It seems like you were a fan. I, I you know, I enjoyed it. I don't. Yeah, it doesn't. It didn't feel like a mind blowing finale for me, but I found it to be a really affecting like character mood. Like uh, this is to me ultimately Forrest's story, you know, and we see Forrest as like a cold murderer from the first episode. And we learn why he feels that way and what's driving him with devs. And the episode where we see what happens to his wife and his daughter is just like, it is, it's my worst nightmare. It's, it's just, it is heartbreaking. And the fact that he is just standing there watching it and maybe feeling a bit it like, so he kind of caused it. Yeah. 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 Feeling, feeling that guilt too. And also it is funny. He spends so much time longing for his daughter and like, he never talks about his wife. It's like I, I really miss Maya. I forget my wife's <laughs> well, name. Yeah, she's got a new girlfriend. She's cool you know, too. That happens. She's cool too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Allison Pill is so much better, but I, I cannot replace my daughter. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I, I guess. Uh. I thought the ending ending was just so good, but I don't know that it was like the best. It was like the greatest ending for the show that preceded it. You know, <laughs> sure, like, sure, that's right, how I yeah. feel. Is like. 
I, I think the the most hilarious response I got was on Twitter when I tweeted about this. Somebody said, "I was expecting more than San Junipero for Jeff Bezos." It, it is. It is San <laughs> Junipero for Jeff Bezos. It absolutely is. It is. Or or, or even um, what's the other Black Mirror with the with the the dating people, uh, the mm-hmm. dating app that the dating simulation, yeah. 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 But just that last, I can't get that last shot out of my head, man. You know, when she, because she's been through this life-altering experience, right? Mm-hmm. Where this guy has basically saved her life a couple times. And she, you know, in my opinion, <laughs> they've fallen in love a, a bit, a <laughs> bit, you know? And uh, well, it's a happy then, ending for her, not a happy ending for, you know, the version of the guy that spent all the time helping her. So also, it's right. And he's yeah, been yeah. he's been brutally murdered, and he's then to be murdered. able to to be able to go yeah. back in time because you're in a simulation, and then the fact that like you know that you're in a simulation, but no one else yeah, does. You're, you're and in you the need matrix. To, like, live with that. You, the, you took the blue pill, yeah. but you didn't get any of the superpowers. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you 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 have the superpower of knowing that you're in the matrix. But that's you know? not. Yeah. So that's that, a, but I think what does that that's do? That's a curse. I think that's that is a bit of a curse. Every, yeah. every interaction you have with every other person except for Nick Hofferman is like this is not a real thing. This is not a real in, individual. <laughs> but, I mean, but, you just you just Jeff, described that the reality of the machine is virtually indistinguishable. From yeah, your life. but so Jeff, that, that is Jeff, the question. If, if it that looks and feels question. and sounds the same, and you know the world behaves the same, then is there really a difference? Meaning, well, you have no a, idea if this is a simulation. Right. This is now. what like, I have argued yeah. about the Matrix since it came out. Was like you're a moron <laughs> if you want to see the real world. Like it's a perfectly <laughs> fine simulation world. That ninety, you're basically Cipher, Joe Pantoliano's character. Yeah, from well, yeah. He, he, yeah, he you're, saw, you're the Benedict Arnold of the. Yeah, Matrix. he saw the he saw the outside world. It sucks, and he's like, "Why would I, if it's indistinguishable? Why would I not want to eat a steak? I, I love steak. I want to eat steak." <laughs> well, uh, spoiler for the Matrix, but they eventually overcome yeah. the uh, machines they in that movie. It's about them, them all working they don't together. Get steak back, yeah. like it, steak's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, maybe they have rat hamburgers in the future. Yeah, um, exactly. All right, Way folks. to wrap it around. Nice. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it sounds like despite what we, the you know, individual feelings we had about the, the ending or whatever, I think we all found it to be like an extremely thought-provoking piece of work. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, um, yeah, beautiful. It's amazing. Davinder said the music, the the production of it, it's just it, it just reeks quality and. Um, it, it's yeah. I mean, I, I found it to be a beautiful piece of art, uh, regardless of of my criticisms with with how it stuck the landing or not. It it's mm-hmm. very much worth seeing, and I don't share Dave's feeling that it is uh, tedious or um, off putting to to anybody. I think if you enjoy science fiction, you'll love this show. It's awesome. You know, I say those things, but also this is like one of the, my favorite things that I've watched in recent memory. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I I'm just trying to caveat it, you know, because I think that. You could hear us like gushing about it and then watch it and then be like, what is the big deal? So I'm trying to prevent those reactions. But I, I agree with you, Jeff. It's a great work of art. And uh, if you want to take a chance on something bold and daring, check out Devs, which is right now on yeah. Hulu or FX on Hulu, whatever you want By to call it. By the way, it. Sh- if you guys like this, uh, shout out to Mark Romanek's Never Let Me Go which Alex Garland wrote. Mm. He wrote the screenplay for that. He was actually the guy who gave Kazuo Ishiguro the idea to like add a dose of sci-fi to Never Let Mm. Me Go, which is also 
if you don't know what it's about, I'm not going to spoil it, but it does like explore like this idea of consciousness mm. and like when is it real when is it not it's a beautiful movie and an amazing book so be sure to check both out i think the most right. oh. offensive thing that has been said this whole episode is dave taking a shit on the deus thing because that is that was cool <laughs> yeah that was cool it's, man. it's like low-key this is dave like saying like i i knew the what the greeks how they spelled deus <laughs> but i think it's low-key cool i don't know well uh, feel free to tweet at us what your thoughts on the Davis <laughs> reveal were. Kind of interested to hear what the uh, general population reaction to that was. Because at the same time, I was like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I'm also like, oh, come on, show. All right. <laughs> well, anyway. You? If you're with it at that point, it's just How like, yeah. yeah. I feel like I can accept anything. He even says point. it was yeah. like a little joke. Like, they're not, they're not it's yep. not trying to beat you over the head with it, but I just thought it was brilliant. It's, it's brilliant. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's going to wrap us up. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Cool, cool. Good episode, fellas. Yeah, see you. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Good eps. <laughs>